This is the Weather Lounge here at Weatherworks. Welcome to the Weather Lounge, a podcast brought to you by Weatherworks. I'm meteorologist Mike Mahalik, and we're going to cut right to the chase here because it's time to talk about winter. And right now, we're looking into the winter of 2021, 2022. It's hard to say those things, Jim. 2021, 2022. Um, But uh, with me is our chief meteorologist, Jim Sullivan, and long-range guru. We'll go with that, yeah. Our favorite guest on the podcast, I would say, too, maybe. Certain, yeah. Do you guys have like a punch (laughs) card? Like, you know, four four appearances, the fifth one's free, or maybe I get a coffee or something. I I don't Uh, know. I think we got to get to ten. Okay, ten for okay. ten for the coffee. It's, By the end of this, that, that's that's the coffee, right? That's all, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, it's fresh from the Keurig, mm. uh, Jim. So you're you're all you're all, all good. I'm this all might set. be Folgers' finest. Okay. Okay. And, and that's not say, a you know best part of waking up is <laughs> yeah. And that's a shameless plug for Folgers, our new sponsor. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, um, so Jim, hey. Let's talk about last winter a little bit before we get into this winter, because I think, you know, it was an interesting one, uh, to say the least. It, it certainly was. So, you know, we we're coming off the winter of 19 and 20, where it did not snow all that much in many areas. Yeah. So last winter, again, you know, snow is an inconvenience to daily lives, but the snow removal industry, I mean, they need it to snow or else they, they, they aren't making money and they're going out of business. And so we needed some snow last winter. We certainly got it, and it started early. We did have a pretty notable nor'easter in the middle of December. Of course. I mean, uh, that was a pretty memorable nor'easter, too, because, I mean, I think that's where um, yeah, like Binghamton, Binghamton yeah. had that crazy deformation band of snow dumping four-plus inches an hour, and I, it was one of the largest deformation bands that I've seen. It was crazy. In my career, honestly. Yeah, it got going, like, like kind of north of State College, Pennsylvania, you know, blasted right through Binghamton. They got over 40 inches of snow. It impacted Albany. It went all the way into parts of, like, uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. Um, and, yeah, I mean, they were getting four or six inches of snow per hour. I mean, you know, some you know some slower winters getting four or six inches of snow in a whole day would be a nice storm. They were doing right. that in an hour, and they did it for several hours in a row. It was. I just remember seeing some of those observations coming out, and it was like already at 24 inches, and the guy just, the observer said four Still inches snowing, an hour, yeah. you know, and the band wasn't moving, and I was like, wow, that is an impressive storm. But then we went into January, and a lull. not a whole lot went down, uh, here, at least here in the Northeast, and even in the Midwest, there wasn't a whole lot, I don't believe. Yeah, we kind of, the pattern kind of needed to reset itself. I think that's kind of what happened there late December through a good chunk of January, because, you know, last winter was a La Nina. We'll get into that a little bit more later and what that entails. The pattern last November and December was actually not very La Nina-like, but it became much more La Nina-like by later January through February. And kind of when it was transitioning, we kind of got into a mild, quieter pattern for a few weeks. So yeah, didn't do a whole lot for for a while there from around the holidays through most of January, um, which is okay because a lot of areas made up for it later in the season. That is true. And after January's little lull, we definitely had the February uh blitz yes uh i was looking for a word there uh knockout punch whatever you want to call it but i mean even in the midwest they had some pretty intense storms um 
a pup a couple of very big lake effect events coming into chicago um yeah and uh, also yeah in chicago they can get their lake effect and yeah you know, I, I lived in cleveland much of my life before moving here so very familiar with lake effect um it basically it gets cold the wind blows across the lake and picks up moisture and it snows and chicago's on the western side of the lake so again they get lake effect i'd say maybe a couple events every winter usually it's not this big yeah it was kind of a combination of a of a system a wind off the lake and you know some spots near near chicago itself got a foot and a half or so of snow out of it yeah definitely a crazy storm for them but when we think about the Northeast, for those people that were a little bit closer to the I-95 corridor um, that got missed by the December storm, well, this one didn't miss you. Um, it did not. And, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think missed is a relative term because all the 95 cities snowed in that mid-December storm, except for like Richmond down there. It didn't. But D.C. Yeah. points north, it snowed. Although, you know, when you're seeing 40 inches in Binghamton, you know, New York City, I think, got eight or 10 inches. Philly got like five or six. So, Certainly missed out on the best portion, but yeah, beginning of February, that did not miss the I-95 corridor. No, and I mean, a lot of places, especially in the Lehigh Valley, northern New Jersey, uh, parts of the Poconos, um, had over 30 inches of snow in some cases. I mean, it snowed for, I think, three days. Yeah. Um, And again, that was another first for me. I didn't remember a storm that long. Man, yeah, it was it was crazy again. Most of it fell in about one day, but then it just kept lingering because it just yeah. stalled there and it just it didn't move out. So we just literally had to wait for it to completely weaken it. Yeah, it had to snow itself out, kind of. Yeah, we got about thirty inches here in Hackettstown. It's the most snow that I've personally seen in one sitting at once. You know, I wasn't on the East Coast for some of those huge storms like like January of twenty sixteen. That was the last I would say whopper, if you will. Um, so that was quite an experience. Uh, you know, I worked a 12 hour shift as we all were here at Weatherworks, keeping everyone, keeping everyone ahead of the biggest storm of the winter. (laughs) And, um, you know, I, I got off work at two in the morning that Monday night and I, I went out to my car and the, the good news was there wasn't a whole lot of snow on top of my car because it blew off. The bad news was there was a drift behind my car that was higher than my trunk. (laughs) That seems to happen for sure in any type of nor'easter like that with all the drifting. However, you know, well, let's keep on moving this along. And then we had summer. We had a very active tornado season in the uh, northeast. Uh, we had a lot of uh, tropical systems, a lot of hurricane landfalls, too. <laughs> and then the west was extremely dry. So yeah. a lot of people, I feel, tend to look at um, these type of things and try to equate it to what the winter is going to be like. So is this something that you take into account at all? Or is it just kind of a bunch of hand waving? Uh, this looks close. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go with yes and no to answer that. So a, a lot of times those unusual patterns that set up that might yield something unusual, like all our wet weather over the summer, or all our tornadoes here in the Northeast, or all, all the tropical impacts in the U.S. And again, in, in a few cases, especially with Ida, those all came at once. It, we, you know, With Ida, we, we had a tropical system, it was wet, and we had tornadoes, so we kind of hit the trifecta there. Um, a lot of times the patterns that set up those unusual events are, are a symptom of something larger happening in, in the global pattern. So 
when we're looking for for analog years, which we'll get into, years that are kind of similar to this year that might help us predict the upcoming season. You know, I, I don't directly look for, did this year have, you know, more than two tornadoes in New Jersey? But a lot of times I'll go through them and, you know, for instance, just looking at the analogs very off the cuff here, a couple of top analogs are 2005 into 2006 and then 2017 into 2018. Those were both very active hurricane seasons. So it's not uncommon when you look for analogs, kind of looking at more more from a global scale, you go, oh, that year actually was kind of similar with some some similar high-impact weather events. So I think there's something to it. It might signal a, a, a pattern that might eventually lead to something else. But again, you know, just because you get a tornado or don't doesn't directly mean you're going to get snow or not get snow. But there, there, probably, there is definitely at least an indirect kind of correlation there. Yeah. Well, you know, we kind of gave a lot of background here, but I think I want to dive right into the maps now. Um, and... Let's just, you know, let's show them what we have so far and what we're thinking about. So we'll start with the temperature map. And uh, in our nice screen here, we should have that popping up any second now. But our tech man is waiting. <laughs> there it is. Well, okay, think, we got it. Boy, I think our tech man is ready to throw a monitor at us. Yeah, no, just kidding. No, we're very friendly with each other here at Weatherworks. Um, in, case, in case you want, <laughs> in case everybody's wondering out there, if you listen to the podcast before, our tech man is uh, Mike Priante, and he's been with us on the podcast a few times now. So he's doing a good job behind the scenes here. Yeah, so we'll kind of delve into the whys a little bit more as we go through the podcast. This was the uh, this was our outlook that we put together last month. Um, and it's, so it's kind of been out in the ether for about two or three weeks now. And, you know, we are working on our updated outlook that'll go out later this month. Um, so the gist was coldest air focus kind of across the upper Midwest, Northern Plains. I think that still looks good. And then relatively mild across the South in particular, the Southwest and then the Southeast, especially near the coast. And then a lot of ups and downs in between. Um, so, you know, the question kind of is, is, what looks most persistent? So like a spot like the, you can look even the I-95 corridor where we're, you know, this outlook was leaning ever so slightly mild overall. That's that's with a lot of ups and downs, you know, and, and the question is in that kind of swing zone, if you will, what will win out, the ups or the downs? Um, you know, for reasons that we'll delve into here a little bit more, um, you know, I am becoming a little bit more confident that the downs might dominate a little bit more this winter. So, it's you know kind of a, a preview here of our final outlook that might that's going out in a, in a few weeks mm -hmm. would not surprise me if we end up nudging the blue the cold air a little bit farther south and east um which could be good news if you want snow and if you don't want snow you're just gonna hope that we're a little bit off with that thinking yeah um so that's it's kind of yeah that's kind of where we're at and you know the question is is what wins out the ups or the downs that's that's yeah. often a common question i think it's important when people look at maps like these though too is that they have to understand that um yes you might be in an above normal area yeah, but take, take for last yeah I, mean, I guess i'll let you finish your yeah. point but take last winter for new jersey an example it was it was by temperature a mild winter in New Jersey last year, but here in North Jersey, we got almost double our normal snowfall. So when it got cold, we made the most of it. He didn't let me finish the point. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just, I just, I was so excited. I just had to so blurt excited. that out. <laughs> well, my point was too, is that yes, you might end up a little bit above normal, but it's not like the whole winter 
is going to be above normal. There's going to be variation, you know, week to week, you know, month to month and things like that. So uh, I think sometimes when we look at maps like these, we're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm in the uh, red, I'm getting no snow, it's going to be 75 all winter long. <laughs> oh, don't don't we <laughs> and, wish, uh, you know, you'll be able to golf in, in February, <laughs> yeah. so on and so forth. But uh, so that's the overall temperature outlook we're looking at. So let's head on over to the precipitation outlook to see where the most active areas are going to be um, and where the most precipitation is going to fall. Yeah. So, um, you know, a few different areas that we're kind of targeting for for active weather this winter. Um, you know, we'll kind of go west to east. First area is the Pacific Northwest, Northern Rockies. Um, what a La Nina does is it kind of strengthens the the northern stream or the polar stream and the jet stream. And that polar stream often often kind of slams right into the, the Pacific Northwest in a La Nina winter. So we're thinking it's going to be pretty active there. Um, another active corridor is kind of from parts of the Ohio and Tennessee valleys towards New England. Um, riding along that big temperature gradient or swing zone we were talking about when we were talking about the temperatures, um, you know, where those ups and downs occurs, uh, there's usually a lot of systems to go along with that. Um, then another area that we we highlighted here was the Great Lakes. Um, again, they're close enough to the temperature gradient that they'll probably see a few larger systems, but we're also leaning towards a, a colder winter there. And as we, you know, indir- I guess indirectly talked about a little earlier, you get cold air blowing across the Great Lakes and it tends to cause snow. Uh, so between getting, you know, some clippers, maybe one or two larger storms, plus a lot of lake effect snow, we're, we're leaning towards an active, wet, snowy winter in a good chunk of the Great Lakes. Yeah, and it's interesting when you look at the map, you can almost pick out a storm track. You know, if you if you, you if you squint and, you know, you, you get some binoculars or a microscope or whatever, you might be able to figure it out. But, you know, I, I see almost like a, a storm track here that looks almost like a, a coastal-type development that, you know, could be happening at times or, or at least something yeah. meeting up here, storms forming um, and riding up the Appalachians. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, you certainly true. Yeah. So again, with a La Nina, which we'll kind of get into what that is here shortly, um, you know, a common, the subtropical jet stream, that's kind of the Southern jet stream that brings all the moisture. A lot of times that's a little bit weaker, which is why we're leaning towards a drier than normal winter across much of the South from, from California, across the four corners, uh, towards Texas, the Gulf coast and, and the, and the Southeast, especially near the coast, um, and that might sneak into like eastern Virginia as well. That's kind of why we're leaning dry there. Uh, but that polar jet stream is very active. And again, a lot of times it dips in the central part of the country. And a lot of times, you know, kind of where it dips and then to the east, that's where your storms ride up and along. Right. And remaining dry in the southwest there, certainly not something that they're looking for with how dry they've been. Right. And, and wildfires and things of that nature. So, yeah. Um, that, certainly. Certainly, we, you know, when we're making these forecasts, um, a lot of thought and effort goes into them, and we certainly hope they pan out. But if, right. if we're a little bit off with the Southwest being dry, that's, that's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, there. let's <laughs> hope they get a little bit more rain if, if they can muster it. So uh, I think from here, the all-important snow map is what we have to look at because that's what everybody likes to see, at least the uh, snow geese out there that they like to call themselves. Oh, gosh, would I, would I be a snow goose then? I don't know. I um, don't know. Sometimes 
You could say I honk like a goose. But anyways, <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, here is the snowfall outlook. Um, and kind of, you know, joke, by the way, <laughs> you kind of <laughs> take where, where we think it'll be cold, where it'll be active. And that's kind of where you look for above average snow. And then where we're looking for it to be either warmer or drier or both. That's where we're kind of leaning towards less snow. So again, snow is inherently fickle. It can be a relatively warm and dry winter, but if it gets really cold for a week in the deep south and they get a snow event, all of a sudden they're at normal. So snow is inherently fickle, but we like the Pacific Northwest Northern Rockies for an active above average snow season. Uh, We also like a good chunk of the Midwest, the Great Lakes into the Northeast, especially New England, uh, for it to be relatively active and snowy. Um, I-95 corridor is kind of on the cutoff. I think I definitely like inland of 95 for it to be snowy. I, it's not that it won't snow along 95, but I think it comes down to what wins out the, the ups or the downs. If the downs went out, I think we can, as I smack my microphone, I think we can, I think we're okay here. Um, (laughs) if the, if the downs went out, if it's a colder winter, you can probably shift that snowier corridor closer to, or even over I-95. But if it's a little bit warmer, then it would probably favor inland. So I-95, it's definitely not a hopeless outlook if you like snow. Um, Although, as is often the case, in more winters than not, I would hedge towards being a little farther inland for the most snow. Right. I mean, there's always that mixing line, that dreaded mixing line that everybody loves um, that sets up somewhere around the I-95 corridor. And, and, and figuring out where that's going to happen is uh, certainly a, a, a tall task. Yeah, sometimes sometimes three or four days out, we, we ha- we're we still trying to figure out where that mixing line is going to yeah. set up. So, um, but yeah, so, you know, that's kind of what we're looking at for above average snow. There, there might be an area in the upper Midwest or Northern Plains where it's, it's so cold that it just doesn't precipitate quite as often. So there might be an area there where it's not a warm winter, but maybe it's not snowy. And then, yeah, unfortunately, worried that the desert Southwest, Southern Rockies, less snow in the mountains than normal. Again, Mountain snow is very important there because when that melts in the summer, that's where they those their reservoirs get a lot of their water from. So if they have a snowy winter there in the mountains, it wouldn't be the worst thing. But unfortunately, we're leaning against it right now. And then we are leaning a bit less snow than normal across parts of the southeast and the lower mid-Atlantic. Again, it, you know, if, if if they get one or two nice storms, that could certainly throw a wrench there. But for now, we are we are kind of cautiously leaning less snow than normal in that area. Great. So, I mean, look, we went through the maps. We, we kind of showed you what we're expecting, but I think we need a little bit more background on, well, why are we forecasting this in the first place? What are they um, so, so where, where's, where's Jim coming from and his long range team there? Uh, um, so let's talk about it. Uh, I think the first thing we'd like to cover is, is La Nina and the ocean temperatures and things of that. Yeah, so, um, you know, El Nino La, La Nina, um, you know, and uh, there we are. So, yeah, the, the big number one, uh, that, yeah. that is the <laughs> La Nina. Um, I guess we figured we'd talk about it first. Um, so El Nino La Nina, that describes water temperatures near the equator in the Pacific. A La Nina is when those waters are a little bit cooler, and an El Nino is when they're warmer, so you can tell by the blue that they're cooler right now. So we have a developing La Nina. Um, Second winter in a row, that's going to have a La Nina. Last winter was a La Nina. Um, So 
basically what this is important because the warmer and cooler waters in the tropics, you know, I mean, hurricane season is an example of that. There are always a lot of thunderstorms in the tropics and those thunderstorms give off an incredible amount of heat um, because, you know, when, whenever a cloud forms, it actually gives off off heat. It's what we call latent heat release. So obviously those tropical thunderstorms, they're very tall and large. So they give off a lot of heat and it's so much heat that it actually impacts the jet stream globally. It's one of our big pattern drivers across the globe. So El Nino and La Nina influence where those tropical thunderstorms are most persistent. So it's actually quite a powerful forecasting tool. Um, as we'll touch on a little bit, there are different flavors to both El Nino and La Nina because with both El Nino and La Nina, you can say this was a, a La Nina winter that didn't snow at all. This is a La Nina winter that snowed a ton. And you can do the same thing with El Nino. So it's it's a very good starting point. But, you know, it's kind of we try to pin down from there uh, what flavor of El Nino or La Nina it will be. But yeah, big starting point for our outlook. Looks like Looks like at least a solid week, La Nina, this winter. It may still intensify and approach moderate. Last winter was a borderline moderate La Nina, so might be similar intensity to last winter. Interesting. So, I mean, obviously, La Nina and El Nino is always a big pattern driver. Right. Um, but I see you got circled there in the Western Pacific uh, around Indonesia and the Philippines. Yeah. Um, what's going on there? How does that affect the global pattern? Yeah, so that, that's kind of an extension of what I was talking about with the tropical thunderstorms. And usually that area, the Western Pacific, it's called the Western Pacific Warm Pool, very aptly named. Those are typically... <laughs> They're the, very creative on that, uh, yes. us meteorologists, when we name that one. You know, for all the names we have that aren't intuitive, it's always nice when we get one where it's like, wow, the name is actually kind of describing what it is. Okay. Um, so... Those are those are usually the warmest waters in the world. And so they're they're like a major kind of center or, you know, driver for those tropical thunderstorms I was just talking about. And those waters being much warmer than normal tells us there's probably a pretty good chance that tropical thunderstorms are going to focus in that area. They've already been focusing there over the summer and into the fall. And a lot of our longer range forecast models kind of keep that up heading into the winter. And given what the water temperatures look like right now, I don't really have reason to expect that to change drastically. So again, you know, you know, and these waters in particular in the Western Pacific are important because if the thunderstorms are quiet there, it tends to argue against blocking. So 2019, 2020, you know, we'll, we'll harken back to that poor excuse for a winter. And I like snow, so... Um, I won't hide my feelings for how how I felt about that winter. <laughs> um, that winter, the thunderstorms were really focused over the western Indian Ocean, closer to Africa, and they were very quiet near Ind Indonesia into the western Pacific. So that winter, there was essentially no blocking. It was a very fast-moving jet stream, a very mild winter. So as long as those waters are warm and we have a lot of thunderstorms there, it kind of gives us a chance at least. Interesting. So now how does that tie into the zone three there in the North Pacific? Because it looks like there should be some sort of interaction going on. Yeah. So the, the waters across the Northern Pacific, you know, I kind of look at it as the tropical waters and thunderstorms drive the pattern and then the, the patterns and the water temperatures away from the tropics. You know, they don't directly contribute to like thunderstorm development, at least not as much. So I kind of look at it that as those augment the patterns a little bit further. 
And what we have across the North Pacific is it's quite warm up there in general, um, but in particular, it's warm you know, off the Asian coast near Japan and a little cooler south of Alaska. Uh, that's what we call a, a negative Pacific decadal oscillation. Um, the PDO is the acronym for it. We have acronyms for everything here in meteorology, especially long-range meteorology. Um, so the warm northern Pacific, it might kind of influence a large ridge in the jet stream near or just kind of south of Alaska, uh, which can help fill North America with cold. Now, the question is, where does that cold dump in? Um, you know, with a negative PDO, with, with that cooler water south of Alaska, that might indicate that a good chunk of the cold does dump in farther west, which is our outlook. You know, we have the cold centered, like, you know, northern Rockies, upper, upper plains, upper Midwest. Um, and then the question from there is, how often does that surge towards the east coast? Mm, yeah. And for those of you uh, who are listening to this and maybe, you know, you're not looking at a video, ah. I, I just have referenced like zone one, two and three. And they're probably thinking there at home, like, <laughs> what is this guy even talking about? There's no one. OK, well, we're going to have a YouTube video up and you can see the frames on our screen right there. So if you want some more detail on the maps and what we're looking at, check our YouTube YouTube channel out. And you'll be able to see that there. And then finally, Jim, we're talking about the North Pacific. Um, and I'm assuming we're looking at blocking NEO, NAO type stuff there. Yeah, yeah. The North Atlantic. Yeah, that would be so for, for those of you who see the map zone four, for those of you who can't, we're talking about the Atlantic Ocean now. And yeah. The water temperature pattern across the Atlantic, it is not only one that favors, you know, active hurricane seasons, it's it's what we call a positive or warm Atlantic multidecadal oscillation, or AMO is the acronym for that. Um, and so what we have is we have very, we have kind of a, a stripe of slightly cooler waters across like the, you know, the tropics from, you know, kind of south of Bermuda towards like the Canary Islands off of the African coast. And then we have warmer waters kind of surrounding that, you know, so, you know, from the Caribbean across the equator, it's warm. And then up and around the Northern Atlantic, it's warm. Um, and especially off the New England coast, off the Canadian Maritimes like Newfoundland, uh, Nova Scotia, it's quite warm. South of Greenland, it's quite warm. And there is some correlation for this positive AMO pattern to lead to a negative NAO, which is is a form of blocking, which is a you know kind of a buzzword that we've mentioned a couple times here. And let's just jump real quick, uh, Mike, if you don't mind uh, jumping to the NAO graphic um, that we got from Penn State University. Um, and I know, again, you can't see that if you're listening in your car, um, but... Um, just kind of explain how this happens. So there's this, you know, I'll let you do it because, you know, you're the expert here when it comes to the long range. Yeah. So blocking in general, and in, and then we'll talk in particular about the NAO. So if there's no blocking, the jet stream gets, it, it's really fast. It moves west to east and it usually focuses closer to the pole. And that's important because north of the jet stream, it's cold. South of the jet stream, it's usually milder in the winter. So you know, if you have no blocking, you have a really fast west to east moving jet stream that struggles to dip south. Um, it's usually a milder winter. Whereas if there is blocking and what blocking is, is there's a big ridge in the jet stream and the jet stream literally has to go around that ridge. It, it backs up behind it. So the jet stream, it buckles. You'll get bigger north south kind of undulations within the jet stream. 
And, you know, so, or you get a big north undulation, that, that might keep it, that might make it warm. Or you have a big south undulation, you can get Arctic air diving south. So an NAO that stands for North Atlantic Oscillation, when that is negative, that means there is a blocking high pressure near Greenland. And when you get a blocking high pressure near Greenland, that backs up the jet stream behind it over the eastern U.S. It tends to make it colder and stormier near the east coast. And for our international listeners, the NAO is probably one of the most single important factors for for places like uh, the the United Kingdom, uh, Great Britain. A negative NAO is usually in place when if it snows or gets cold there at all, and they're they're very mild without it. Right. So, I mean, yeah, that's really good. We have to explain that because it's very important to our winters and very important to East Coast uh, nor'easters that we like to see. Yeah, um, I'm sorry, guys. I just keep hitting the microphone, I think, man, at this point. Man, I tell you, like, at this point, we I'll just... I'll just buy you a new one or... Just ought to quit. And they'll say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Mike, the poor tech guy, he's like, you know, I'm trying yeah. to... He's, like, he's probably going to try and edit out all those big smacks, although I know I've done it, like, mid-sentence three times. Yeah. So. Anyway, going back to... <laughs> it's a Monday morning here at Weatherworks. <laughs> yeah. I've worked very early this morning, too. So Yeah. Um, but I'm not hitting my mic, so I don't know what Jim well, was clear, up to. Clearly, you're the, you're the pro, and I'm the guest. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know how to work around your microphone. Yeah, except I got a lot of residue in the bottom of my coffee here, mm. which is kind of weird. And I don't know if you get that with your Keurig machines, but, you know. Sometimes it happens. Uh, anyway, um, so going back to the overall pattern, since yeah. we talked about blocking, you know, we have a general sense of what that overall pattern is going to be like. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think, you know, if we think about it, like you were saying, the cold air is going to be in the northern portion of the country, in the center portion of the country, maybe a little bit further west, maybe a little mm -hmm. bit further east. It all depends. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's, you know, just describe it a little bit of what, of how you see this uh, unfolding, or at least on average. Yeah. So again, you know, uh, you know, kind of a starting point, and what we did to kind of come up to, to come to this idea is, we we took some years that have similarities to this year called analogs. I believe I kind of briefly touched on that, and we showed what the analog, you know, kind of came up with what the analogs looked like, and. You know, big features in those analogs is a, a big ridge in the jet stream across the northern Pacific, uh, which dumps that cold into, you know, western Canada and the northern United States, especially like the northern plains and upper Midwest. Um, a bit of a ridge off the, off the east coast, which is very common in a La Nina winter. It's called a southeast ridge, very aptly named. Um, you know, so I guess other things that showed up in the analogs that are a little interesting is... And some of the analogs, that ridge over the northern Pacific, extended all the way through Alaska towards the North Pole. And the years that that happened, that really increases the cold, you know, especially across the upper Midwest. But it also, the colder it is across the upper Midwest, the easier it is for it to bleed farther south and east. Um, you know, meteorologists know this, you know, cold air, especially in winter, it's very dense. So if it's persistently very cold... Um, it's, it's not difficult for it to ooze farther south and east. So, um, years with that bigger ridging into Alaska, um, when we get that, they tend to be colder. Um, another thing that showed up in, in some analogs is ridging near Greenland, a negative NAO. 
Um, so it's interesting that blocking in those two places is showing up in, in a number of our analogs. So even though the mean pattern, you know, we're kind of going kind of mild across the southern U.S. and and kind of, you know, in the middle up and down here along the I-95 corridor and then colder towards the Midwest and the Great Lakes. Um, you know, that's kind of like our starting point. But if that blocking looks like it's going to be more persistent, you can certainly bring that colder air, you know, for the winter as a whole closer to the I-95 corridor and suppress the southeast ridge a little bit more. So that's something that, you know, we're still early on in the game here. We're still, you know, we're still, you know, a few weeks away from sending our final winter outlook out to our clients. And the reason is, is as we move through the fall, we, we, you know, it's, you know, I would say anything through August or September, it's largely, it's, you know, an educated guess based on the analogs. But once we start getting into October, once, once the pattern starts showing itself a little bit, that's where we can hone in. So, yeah, that's something I look, you know, we do here through the fall and into the early part of the winter is we, you know, because, you know, we have a nice, you know, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, we have a nice map here of what the analogs look like when we take them all and combine them and see what the average pattern kind of is. But even within these analogs, there are some years that have no blocking and are very mild. And then there are other years that have a lot of blocking and are colder. Um, I would say between the two, I would say there are a few more analogs that have blocking and are colder than are the opposite or th that are very mild. So, that is somewhat encouraging that our analogs tend to lean in a blockier direction, but you know it's it's hard to be really aggressive with the forecast until you know you can have a little more confidence in which way that's actually going to go. Everybody that loves snow just like perked <laughs> up their ears uh, when they heard that. Oh, there's a little more blocking uh, <laughs> in some of the analogs that we've been analyzing. Yeah, they're like ooh. Ooh, he just talked about blocking. It means cold and stormy. <laughs> yes. So it, it, again, it's you know just looking at the analogs. That's certainly far from yeah. hopeless. Um, All right. So uh, now that's our general pattern. Thanks for describing it for us so well, Jim. Um, but there's a couple of things I want to ask a little bit more about. And gonna you know, turn the heat up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well. <laughs> The, the proverbial heat, not the actual heat. <laughs> right. No, don't don't touch the thermostat. Um, but uh, no, it was just a few things that uh, I know have been tossed around in yeah. long range forecast in the past. And, uh, you know, I think one of the big ones uh, that I hear a lot from is uh, sunspots. Um, yeah. How much does that really play into a forecast? Um, because a lot of people put a ton of weight on it and other people kind of, hmm. you know, put it to the side a little bit. So. Let's just talk about that just for a little. Yeah. So, you know, what we're talking about is sunspots. So, for, you know, some brief background. Um, the sun, it to the naked eye, and you should never look at it with the naked eye. It looks exactly the same every day. But, you know, to, you know, there, there, <laughs> but we, we have equipment nowadays, the power of modern technology. We can actually track how active the sunspots are. And the sunspots, they really, they, they, you know, release different types of rays. And that's why sunspots actually can be damaging to like the electrical infrastructure if they're if they're strong enough. They release certain types of waves that interact with the upper atmosphere in such a way that they can actually influence the weather pattern. And by the upper part of the atmosphere, I mean like the stratosphere. So the lowest level of the atmosphere where we live that is the troposphere, and that is where like 98% of the weather happens. Uh, the level above our heads is the stratosphere, um, 
Usually the troposphere and stratosphere don't interact except for winter. Winter is the one season where they do interact here in the northern hemisphere. So when the sunspots are active, it tends to promote a stronger polar vortex in the stratosphere. And what I mean by stronger is it's compact. It sits near the North Pole, and if you kind of remember our blocking conversation, it sounds a lot like a pattern that has no blocking. So when sunspots are higher, it tends to correlate a little bit to a stronger stratospheric polar vortex and, and can argue against blocking. The opposite is true when, when the sunspots are lower. It can argue for a weaker polar vortex in the stratosphere that's, you know, a little wavier and can be more conducive to blocking here in the troposphere where we live in the winter. Um, we live here year-round, but the blocking occurs in winter. Um, so, you know, we have a graph up for those of you who can see it. Kind of, there, there are, there's an 11-year sunspot cycle. Um, they've been tracking these since the 1700s. And we are between cycle 24 and 25. We have been in a deep minimum the last few winters which might explain why there's there was so much blocking last winter and we're still close to the minimum so you know i would say this is a unless we see a sudden increase in the sunspots this fall i would say this is a factor that argues for you know at least somewhat enhanced blocking potential this winter right yeah and i know uh, in the past there's been very low um, sunspot cycles, you know, right. talking about and, the Maunder minimum, I believe. Yeah, and, th is, and those came with, with a streak of colder winters yes. there in the 1800s, which we don't look, at least no. I don't look that far back <laughs> for analogs. It's a little sketchy. But even more recently, the last solar minimum occurred around 2008, 2009. And a lot of times there's a bit of a lag here. And we had two winters in a row with a ton of blocking and 2009, 2010, 2010, 2011. 09 and 10, that was a strong El Nino. 10, 11 was a strong La Nina. Uh, despite being completely opposite in the tropics, um, they, they both had a lot of blocking, and it's it's very likely that the, the solar minimum around there had something to do with that. So, you know, there was some conjecture for a little while that the sunspots were getting, the, the maximums were getting less and less over the last couple of cycles. And people were thinking that, well, maybe we're heading towards another Maunder minimum. But yeah. this year, the projections are slightly higher. So it does look like that is not going to happen. Um, now, I'm not a solar specialist. I'm, I'm really not either. But, but yeah. So, yeah, there, I mean, because the last sunspot cycle, um, so, you know, we're kind of heading into solar cycle 25 here. Cycle 24 was a really weak cycle because the two minimums around it, the one we're just coming out of now and then the one in the late 2000s, those were both long, deep minima. And the max in, you know, around 2014, 2015 was a very meager solar maximum. And even the cycle before that, it was a bit of a weaker maximum than prior cycles. So, um you know, we, we have had a few slightly weaker solar cycles in a row, but nowhere near the, the Maunder minimum there in the 1800s. And yeah, there's a little, for those that can see, there's a little graph on the bottom. Compare the early 1800s to the early 2000s. And are, are we, we are in a string of weaker solar cycles, but it still doesn't compare, at least not yet. Okay. So that was one of my burning questions. Burning, uh, yeah. My other burning question was, what's up with the snowpack in Siberia? Because I have yeah. heard about that a few times now, how that can affect our winters. Boy, burning questions about snow, huh? Um, sorry, <laughs> Burning guys. questions about snow, yes. yes. We like to contradict ourselves. <laughs> 
<laughs> so in terms of Siberian snowpack, so yeah, the argument is, and again, this is a fall thing. This is another example of anything before roughly October is kind of an educated guess based off of just a, a larger set of analogs. This is an example of something that can help us hone in the, in the fall. So the theory goes, and there have been several papers written about it, um, there, there is a correlation. Um, the question is if there is a causation. But the, the correlation is Octobers that have more snow cover growth across northern Eurasia, in particular Siberia and surrounding areas, those snowier Octobers there tend to lead to more blocking in the following winter and hence colder weather across the central and eastern United States. Um, again, I'm not sure if, if there, there's definitely a correlation. It's not 100%. No correlation in weather for the most part is 100%. Um, so like if there's another factor that might overwhelm it, that snow cover might not mean anything. But in a year like this where it's kind of a weaker La Nina, it very well may mean something. Early indications are there's going to be a lot of snow cover advancement there, which would tend to point to blocking. Uh, so it's certainly an interesting signal. Again, my kind of theory here is that snow cover is more a response to a larger pattern. You know, so I think it's more of a symptom than a cause. But regardless, there's definitely a correlation, especially in years like this with a weaker Pacific signal. Um, so, yeah, early indications are we're going to have a lot of snow cover advancement there this month, um, which would maybe point towards more blocking. And we'll see if that holds up through the month. All right. Well, he sets it straight on Siberia, Siberian snow cover. But I have one more since, like you said before, our, us meteorologists, we like our uh, alphabet soup, as I like to, or as, as you like to coin um, in, in some of your uh, blogs that you've written in the past. <laughs> um, but uh, I got another one for you, another acronym, uh, QBO. QBO. What yeah. is up with the QBO? Because I know the NAO and and, and, and the AO and the. It sounds like you know. It e- sounds like you're going to start singing Rudolph the Red yeah. Red Nosed <laughs> Reindeer. You know NAO and PNA and no. Um. Okay. So QBO stands for Quasi Biennial Oscillation. That's the thing. They never know what they're going to get for me on a Monday morning. But the Browns won yesterday, so they they have perky off script gym. Yes. Um, but yeah, QBO, quasi-biennial oscillation, it is a phenomenon that occurs in the stratosphere, the second level of the atmosphere that we talked about. And it is usually a rather cyclic phenomenon where strong westerly winds kind of descend through the stratosphere and then easterly winds descend through the stratosphere. So the NA or the QBO, if it's negative, that means there are easterly winds compared to normal. So easterly winds compared to normal, that that is kind of the opposite of the way the jet stream goes. The jet stream is usually west to east. So when you have those easterly winds that can kind of point to an opposite kind of setup in the stratosphere, it can basically, easterly QBO can point to a weaker stratospheric polar vortex, which can lead to more blocking in the winter here in the, in the troposphere. So that's the correlation there. Um, that's the most kind of direct correlation. Um, you know, there's some other things in the pattern that that it impacts. Like it, it can actually modulate the reaction to those tropical thunderstorms. I won't go into it a ton. I will just tell you that behind El Nino, La Nina, I would say QBO is probably up there in my top few things that I look for when I'm picking analog winters. Yeah, no, it's, you explained it well there, how it could potentially, you know, with that 
the the weaker winds yeah. that you're talking about could you know pro, you know develop that weaker polar vortex too, and so that makes a little bit more sense. Um, right. And again, it's me. like like everything else. It's not a one to one correlation, but it's something that you add into the equation. And again, when I when I add everything to the equation this year, more stuff is pointing towards blocking being relatively favored as opposed to the other way. So. You know, that is some reason for optimism if you are a snow goose, as we said earlier in the podcast. Yeah, so we <laughs> talked about the blocking and, and all that. Um, any other wrenches that you can see getting thrown into this mix of the forecast? I yeah. think we already covered a lot of the p- possibilities out there, but yeah. maybe there's something that, you know, we just haven't touched on yet. Yeah, so certainly, you know, wrenches in the forecast. So like I said, you know, the maps we kind of showed you are, again, kind of a middle ground. So obviously one possibility is, you know, a lot of stuff is pointing towards blocking. So one possibility is we're sitting here later this month or next month and going, it's all systems go for a blocky or a winter with a lot of blocking. And we might shift the outlook colder because of that. On the flip side, if if certain things happen, you know, one, one concern is, how strong does the La Nina get, and where are those those coldest waters focused? Um, we're kind of going for a weak to maybe moderate La Nina, but the wa- so this La Nina is tricky because the waters right at the surface have been very slow to cool. Like they're even right now, they're barely on the fence of a weak La Nina versus a more neutral setup. Um, but the waters just beneath the surface are very chilly. Um, And the thought is that those are going to kind of work their way towards the surface and cool the surface off towards a more solid week to moderate La Nina. If those waters work to the surface too well and it becomes a stronger La Nina, that might make it a little bit more difficult for it to be cold, at least for extended stretches. So that could be a warmer signal if the La Nina gets stronger than we're thinking. Um, If the sunspots really increase this fall, which again, it's pretty unlikely. Usually the solar cycle is is fairly gradual and well-behaved, but we are gradually on the upswing. If for some reason we get a burst of really high sunspot activity this fall, that could point towards a little bit less blocking. Um, And maybe if the Siberian snow cover, if that ends up being slower than expected, that would probably signal a pattern that is less conducive for blocking. So those are things we're going to watch. Sunspots, La Nina intensity, um, what happens over Siberia here over the next month or two. And, you know, another thing I'll be watching is do the thunderstorms stay kind of active in the Western Pacific near Indonesia, like I was talking about. If they don't, like if maybe they drift towards the Indian Ocean for some reason, that could point towards a warmer forecast. So, again, there are certain, you know, a lot of things look favorable for blocking. And so basically a wrench would be if if those things drift in another direction here over the next few months. I get it. I get it. So, hey, I think that pretty much covers everything uh, for our first winter preview. So there it is, everybody. <laughs> Jim, uh, I just want to... Thank you for being here with us. And oh, no problem. We will invite you back on, um, and that will be sometime in mid-November, uh, and we'll talk about our final winter outlook. I'll mark my calendar now. <laughs> yes, mark it down. And also sometime in January for the update well, that on one how I'm, winter's going. That one I'm just going to have to get tattooed to my forehead, <laughs> or else I'll forget. <laughs> You'll get a message in January on your phone. What is this winter update? I don't remember this update. It's like, no. oh, we scheduled that back uh, in October. What do you? Uh, come on, man. 
Well, no, no. anyway. We'll be all good. You know where I work. <laughs> yes, right upstairs from me. Um, so, all right, Jim. Well, again, thanks for being here. This is the Weather Lounge, and you know, please find us anywhere you get your podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. I think we're on just about everything, um, so you will be able to find us there because we have a bunch of episodes that are really interesting. Uh, I think it's over 30 now um, episodes that we do have, but also visit WeatherWorks on social media. And weatherworks.com is the place to go for our company's website. So if there's any uh, more information, Jim will certainly be passing that along in mid-November. So please come back and listen then.